so uh, my name is Matt Luray, and uh, I hate writing tests. And so I thought it would be super ironic if I started a company that uh, was in the testing space. Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey everyone, I am Alan. I'm here with Brent. Brent, say hi. Hi everyone. And we have another guest. We have Matt. Matt, say hi. Hey, nice to meet you. Hey, welcome hey. Matt. I know where what Matt does and where he works, but give us the uh, the intro bio, Matt. Yeah, so uh, my name is Matt Luray and uh, I hate writing tests. And so I thought it would be super ironic if I started a company that uh, was in the testing space. And so the name of the company is SpeedScale, and uh, we uh, we use automated traffic replay to validate your software, so you don't have to write tests anymore. And that's that's what I do for a living nowadays. I I can you say that sentence again? Because I yeah. don't think on the podcast I have heard a a sentence that I love more. Say it again. <laughs> So, so I hate writing tests. And so the sentence is that I'll say multiple sentences is uh, uh, because I'm so, I, I'm so lazy and I do not wish to, uh, you know, like write, like do integration tests and like end to end tests and all that. Uh, we came up with this idea of recording production API calls like using it's like a like a distributed Wireshark. <laughs> basically, we take all the traffic, then we massage it into incoming test cases uh, I mean, we call them test cases, but it's really just incoming user transactions. And then we take the other half of the, tra- the traffic and we turn it into automated mocks. So that means like, let's say your service depends on uh, the X, you know, Xbox Live API or, de- you know, depends on Gmail or something like that. Our service will read what happens in production and we will pretend to be any of those APIs so that you can do like an integration test without actually building an integration test environment or writing tests. And we do that by like recording, like Wireshark, recording what's actually happening. Love it. I'm ready to go into Q&A already. <laughs> love it, love it, love everything about it. Love, love, love. So let me, before you go into Q&A, I want to yeah. talk about why this is important for our, I want to actually add some context. And also, I want to point out, this is the quickest ever ever in the history of 164 episodes of the AB Testing Podcast, we've actually got to a conversation about something substantial in the first three minutes. <laughs> and I am not kidding. Oh, yeah. We had this other agenda. So, uh, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. I'm going to go on. Often in the the testing world, and there's these different bubbles of where people are, and, and I talked to Matt a little bit before you got here, Brent, around generalizing specialists and how we sort of saw the move to agile working. I think a lot of times people write tests. Um, pe- there are teams, and this hurts my soul, that we have teams dedicated to nothing except writing automation and usually writing some UI automation. And not being smart about it or converting manual tests to automated tests, which is, again, just this is smart. This is like, let's take some stuff we already have and let's turn it into something that's actually even more valuable. I'm going to let Brent ask his questions. But I know Bing did something like this a couple times, too. We had a little bit of things at Microsoft at a little small scale. Like, Didn't we do some traffic replay to try and try and see what Bing would look like if it doubled from 5,000 to 10,000 users? Oh, there's there's a. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot on on sort of traffic replay. Shadow environments is another thing where where essentially you have a separate environment where your 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 proposed code is deployed, and then you just automatically clone the traffic across both environments. There's a lot of techniques here. I don't know. Like I I I. I think now around, okay, what are the frameworks within Microsoft that's really helping to emphasize this? And I can't think of a single one, right? And it's because it's hard. It's hard and it's hard to make it generalize. And so when when teams reorganize, things get forgotten, people are like, oh, that was interesting, but we'd have to spend 18 years to port it. It's hard. So Great. If if Matt and team have have essentially, have you are you solving this through a SaaS play, or do you do you have to install uh, libraries from your team? Like, yeah, good question. So the um, so first thing I'll say is uh, it is really hard. It's harder than I thought it would be. Uh, but fortunately, as my co-founder says, I really enjoy pain. Um, I really enjoy the <laughs> suffering that comes from from solving this problem. Uh, it just it just it fulfills me as a person. Uh, but it is actually really hard. Uh, but you know, it turns out there's like once you get past a few heuristics, a lot of it isn't actually that difficult. When you get past like re-signing, you know, JWTs or JOTs or tokens, authorization, uh, authentication, you know, you get into like uh, being able to change fields and database queries. A lot of the problems is like an eighty twenty rule, but uh, it is a SaaS play, which was your original question. It is a SaaS play, uh, although we are able to take it on premise later. But right now, because we're kind of small still. We're, we're keeping it in-house so that we can see the data and we can figure out what those heuristics and patterns are as new ones come up. But yeah, it's SaaS for now. The, the number one thing people always don't like is uh, sending data to someone else, right, for this. And so we have a, a data loss prevention thing we do, which is basically like, it's like a masking engine. It's just a little little bit smarter because it'll, it'll find the same, uh, n- like not allowed, like PII data. It'll say, hey, if I see... Alan over here on an inbound transaction, and I see Alan going to the database, I need to replace both Alans with the same, excuse me, redacted information so that it'll play back correctly. And so it's like, if we're mocking it, we're pretending to be the database, the database, meaning SpeedScale, will pretend like we know who Alan is, you know, back and forth. So that's right. the- but without knowing, right? Uh, without what? Without actually knowing, so you you probably you probably are are hashing the the detecting and hashing the string and then using that. No, sure, re- rename the Nala the, the the backward string hash. <laughs> the what? Uh, okay, are we Brent, going back the, to the, the 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 useless stuff at the typical no, part no, of the? No, the okay. the humor went right over your head as usual, Brent. It 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 did. Uh, it, Do you guys know what a Wiseman score is? From the show Silicon Valley, I remember the name of it. R- remind me, and I'll remember it. So I it's, love it's, that show. It's something they made up for the show, but actually is a real mathematical formula. Like it actually works, but they made it up for the show, and it basically is a way of ranking compression algorithms by how well. Yes, well, of course, of course, yeah. Um, middle out's the best, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, middle out's the best. So my running joke with my one of my co-founders is the first time we did this like data loss engine. Uh, or first time we we you know we're sending this data around, we ended up uh, writing a negative Wiseman score compression algorithm. Which, if you look at the math and how that works, it means we caused it to get a lot bigger. So that's that's mm. a that's a computer science first. Um, our compression algorithm made everything bigger, and then we had to- <laughs> <laughs> you got to start somewhere. <laughs>
You got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if you just start with decompressing the the raw data, then then you'll go in the right direction. You know, I'm, I'm going to take that back. <laughs> well, well, what you want to do? Like, suggest not uh, for some other unsolicited advice. Take all the parts of the, just take the parts you don't need and delete those. That it's smaller. <laughs> or you know, just you know, every every other bit, just drop drop those. Yeah. I'm sure it'll just be fine. Fifty percent compression right there. <laughs> yeah, you didn't need them anyway. <laughs> no. yeah, it's the extra parts that you get from Ikea, right? Yeah. One of the things that we've said on the podcast years ago, years and years and years ago. That's before I had a beard. No, one of the things one of the things that that we talked about here is is one way to sort of merge. This was at a time where people were still trying to get comfortable moving from on-prem to the the service space and they were sort of duplicating their test cases and they felt that tip meant moving my test suite to the cloud and then monitors and tests were the same thing. And oh yeah. 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 And, and so one of the things, one of the things we talked about here is yeah, really in this new world, you should be able to use, say local automation to sort of drive traffic, which I think you're improving upon that, but use local automation to drive traffic. And one of the things that, that we proposed was essentially, but change your validation side of the suite, that your yep. validation should be able to use your existing telemetry and not specific validation steps to identify whether or not you have, let's say a regression or or even a life site type incident your thoughts on that and how how has uh speed scale advanced sort of those thought processes you guys i don't know if you know if you guys know where it came from you you remember the phrase uh pets versus cattle the kubernetes folks talk about this a lot have you guys ever heard that no i'm okay. not aware i heard it from Hel- kelsey hightower but he credited someone else i don't remember who and, it was and kelsey follow kelsey on twitter kelsey hightower is awesome that's where i got it from is on twitter yeah it's, it's he's awesome he's full of knowledge uh so but uh but anyway, what it basically says, like when you go to like these cloud environments, you generally you stop like keep keeping these carefully curated servers, and instead, like like a pet, you know, where you just love them and you dress them and you give them names and you teach them how to say certain words and whatever, and eventually you go towards like herds of cattle, and you know they're all going to eventually be you're not really like naming them, you're just kind of keeping them corralled or whatever, and if some of them get lost, it's not that big a deal, and so the kind of the idea is like. If you, if you take that to the world of testing, cloud testing, if you lift and shift your entire testing suite from the old thing you were doing and you move it over to, the, to this cloud environment, you're not really getting any benefit. You might as well have stayed on, bo- you know, on boxes or bare metal or whatever, you know, VMs or whatever it is. And so that's, you know, you're kind of hitting at the heart of what made us come up with the idea is like, or, you know, the problem is, it's like, I want to treat all this stuff as cattle. I want to treat it like it can be blown away and it's no big deal. And how do you do that? Well, what if I just record a new version out of production every so often? You know, I mean, like, so what? <laughs> you know, like some of our, uh, like, we'll do it for like every hour, for instance. We'll just say, you know, every hour we're going to get a new copy of this stuff, like a certain sections of it or whatever. And then, you know, re- reproduce that and bring it back. And so, so yeah, that, that's the idea is to bring that automation back to it. And then the other thing is, um, I, I don't know what you guys' experience is like, but I've never been able to keep up with tests, like handwritten tests even the best handwritten tests or mocks. 
Have you ever seen? Do you guys ever seen that work? Where like it stays up to date and it's not a huge burden on people. Uh, only in places where we have like five unit tests. <laughs> 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 Seems like a, there's some downsides to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, just 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 a just a little. Yeah, um, the maintenance cost is is ginormous. Uh, this is one of the places where Alan and I, for example, we we're just like, no, handcrafted UI tests should just be banned, just out <laughs> outright banned. And then Alan, I don't know what is it, but a year where you did did, did some deep thinking on this, and you're like. Alan shifted. Uh, we spent most of our career going, yeah, recording playback. They're stupid because they're just a bitch to maintain. Yeah. But if you get rid of the bitch to maintain part, then they become pretty fantastic. Yeah. Just to, to loop uh, Madden our, on our thinking, um, the recording playback stuff now has a little bit of ML built into it to adjust for when things move or whatever and kind of work. And even if like your Selenium test is going to eventually fail and stuff, eventually, no matter how clever you write it, it's a, you spent hours or weeks on these tests, they're eventually going to get stale and not work. I would rather just do the record and playback because you can ha- if you need that UI test to verify some logic you shoved into your UI, use the record and playback test because it's smart enough to keep working for a long time. And when it finally stops working, you can take five minutes and create a brand new one from fresh data. Yeah. And that and people don't like me. Well, not, you, you two like me saying it. There's some people that don't like that approach. They go, they're holding on to their test automation job, writing Selenium all day. Like it's the, I just don't get it to me. It, it's, it's not, a, it's, it's factory work. Basically. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the love. It's not the kind of pain I'm with you, Matt on. I want, I like to live in pain. I'm I don't not want that other pain. people to live in pain. Just me. Yeah, yeah, so I'm I'm far less masochistic, but but <clears throat> I will say that if it's easy, it's not fun. True. Or if you don't learn. True. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I was thinking through another scenario on on that we were just talking about. It's it's already escaped me. Sorry. I do want to ask you, Matt. Do you have a, a an example ready nearby of a, a handcrafted carp carp guitar? Yes, yes, actually, oh, I do. Brent is just changing. Yeah, just a, no, just a, I'm just. Brent, well, while we were talking, Brent decided to read the little bio of Matt from yeah. the website and now wants to take our podcast in a completely freaking different yeah, it, direction. So, I'm so game. It, it, it's, it's A-B testing. It's not just A testing. Uh, it, it's ADHD testing. You, you skipped over the bullshit part of the podcast, so I'm going back. Like ever ever since I saw his bio, I'm like, yeah. So that was something that I was actually thinking about picking up as a hobby, and yeah. then I got a bunch of instruction books, and I'm like, oh, this is going to take for goddamn ever. Playing guitar or Both. carving guitars? Uh, why don't I show you? Yeah, you, you got to build what <laughs> yeah. you play, right? It's hanging on the wall. So, oh, and he's oh, good yeah, at yeah. it. And, and and our listeners can't see this, oh. but just live vicariously through that our words. That is beautiful. What is the 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 wood you used? So uh, this is a t- this is like a mahogany, a thin mahogany. Um, oh. thing I actually bought from a kit, so I don't. I I think it's maple. So uh, I'm not I'm not an expert on that. Uh, but I carved this uh, by hand. The speed scale logo, as you can see on my shirt, speed scale. Yeah, nice. Um, and then yeah, I yeah. it was my first experience carving wood, and then also. 
do you do you play speedy scales? You know, uh, yeah, I I, <laughs> I I used to play quite speedy scales. Now I sound uh, more like I belong in like a like Earth, Wind, and Fire cover band or something. Like I'm not. Uh, it's more of like let the singers do their thing. I'm not so much a great guitar player. There is absolutely zero wrong. <laughs> zero. With an oh, earth, no. wind, and fire Wonderful music. Band. Just not like super guitar yeah. music, you know. I, I dream of being able to be at that level. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. I was uh, I was watching Stranger Things, uh, you know, in, in my copious yeah. free time. And um, and they have that the scene. You may have seen it, right, where the, the, one of the guys plays Master of Puppets. Yeah, Eddie. And I um, felt yeah. like I was like, it's been 30 years and I'm finally cool. Finally. <laughs> everybody <laughs> song was 30 years of note everybody hated that song you know whatever we were like the weird people but now people know what it is i do want to point out because i have uh so many things i've forgotten in my life and brent's right the bullshit parts here i remember the 80s so well just so well and that oh shoot what year is it 86 um 86 86 it said on spring break of 1986 that whole that yeah, Stranger Things, and uh, that's no spoiler there. Master of Puppets was released in the beginning of March, nineteen eighty-six. So that meant Eddie learned to shred <laughs> on that song with no tab, no internet, in less than three weeks. Impossible. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to point that out for the co- for the for your continuity, and I don't think that spoils anything. But yeah, where were we, Brent? <laughs> I- Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> so a couple things I want to talk about. Um, I would like to learn a little bit more about how you learn to hate testing. Yeah. Uh, so I've been I worked in the uh, observability space or what we call monitoring back then for 15 years. It actually started with satellite monitoring. So it was it was a great job out of college. Uh, and I would go around the world and install monitoring systems for Earth stations. So that's like the, the intent on the ground part of satellites. And then also fiber optic cables. So as a 22-year-old, I would go out to these fiber optic cables that would span, like run out into the ocean and sit on the beach and install software. There were worse things in life back then. So... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so then I got into, uh, I was very fortunate to get into a company called Wiley Technology that was bought by CA. Um, it was a, the first sort of APM vendor, which meant, you know, back then what it really meant is like tracing. Uh, it was one of the first vendors that did tracing, metrics. It didn't do logs, but, um, and uh, got to kind of learn about how big enterprises uh, tried to solve problems in monolithic systems. Um, so I don't know how, how much everybody's interested in the deep technical bits, but like Wiley was one of the first companies that did something called bytecode instrumentation, which was you would be able to look inside of a running Java process by lose, using like sticking little hooks everywhere. It was almost like, you know, like putting timers everywhere, right? Without anybody noticing. And so, you know, that was great for a monolith because in the monolith world, you know, like getting a stack trace is like king, right? Like that's. The, that's as like as good as it gets, especially if you can get a stack trace with timings, like a flame graph over time, right? And so we got to do that, and it was it was fantastic because it was like all these folks were struggling with this stuff, and you'd walk in and you'd be like, "Here, just install this," and they'd be like, "Yeah, I don't know, you know, no, trust me, install it." And they would install it, and they'd be like, "I can't believe it." And I was like, "I know exactly, it's amazing, right?" And so uh, we got to do that, and then I kind of watched some of the the transition into microservices, and that kind of changed things for me, where. It wasn't like getting the stack trace and the flame graph was what was important. 
it like inside of a process. It was more like the problem moved to the to the between the processes. So like yes. now, the, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I was just guessing. Like that's that's the nightmare I'm dealing with every day, day in and day out. It's it's essentially the problems are in the no man's land between components and therefore teams and therefore right trying to figure out how the components are fitting together and more importantly how they're not is the problematic Mm -hmm. aspect. Please, I'm enthralled by your story. Please continue. So when that happened, what what you needed in a monitoring tool changed, and I think that kind of gave rise to observability, you know. And I kind of stayed in that in, that that world for a while, uh, but you know what? Like, and I think a lot of tr- like a lot of tractions being made there. Some of the new the, like the new monitoring tools are amazing, right? The new observability tools, what they can do, open tracing, they're open telemetry, and you know broad, more broadly, they're putting that into the core libraries now in a lot of the Go stuff and and in Java as well. And so, like, out of the box, it, like, let's say you're running Istio, which is a service mesh. And I don't know if everybody knows what a service mesh is, but it's it's like the networking layer on top of Kubernetes. I'm oversimplifying, but otherwise, this will be a five-hour podcast. Yeah, Good enough. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll do a whole other three-part series on what a okay. service mesh is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll need uh, it. Um, oh, no, so, we won't. no, we won't. <laughs> so, like, if you turn on some of the observability stuff where it generates spans, which are, like, where the hops are, if they gener- if you turn that on in some of the service meshes, and then you use the default libraries, right? You get a pretty good view of what's going on, actually. You still need commercial stuff. You know, you still need, or not necessarily commercial, but you at least need Prometheus and all that, uh, or Jaeger or Zipkin to go and, like, uh, put stitch it together for you. But it's, it's kind of a, an interesting new world to me. And I don't claim to be an expert on all the, the newest and latest and greatest because I'm busy with speed scale. But uh, it's a pretty, a pretty interesting world. But it sounds like you guys have been doing a lot of work with that. So... What's your what's your take? I want to talk a little bit about Istio. If if you can get it up and running, <laughs> uh, it, it it's it, it's it's a little fickle. There is just a massive amount of information and capabilities in that. There's so much you can. It's it's a kitchen sink of stuff. Yeah. But this kind of gets a little bit into the another question I wanted to ask you about. You got all the way here. Although although I don't know if ever know if I heard your story or if I heard why you hate testing. Oh uh, yeah. So um. Uh, I, w- I, was, I was always in like engineering leadership and then I did a stint in technical sales for like seven years, but I did like in, you know, engineering leadership. And uh, the, the thing I hated about testing is like being serious for a second is everybody hates the testers and they're the ones who, who keep you from lighting yourself on fire, right? Like they, <laughs> you're like, okay, I love this code. It's going to be great. It's awesome. I'm ready to send it to production. And then the tester goes and says, hey, I was messing with this thing and then it burst into flames. And you're like, yeah, you did something wrong. And they're like, no, no, I didn't, right? Uh, and so, but then everybody hate, hates that that function anyway, right? Because it seems like it's a waste. And then the folks who are doing it are, are sitting here writing all these, like you said, the end-to-end Selenium tests or whatever they've got. Maybe it's Postman. They're just like trying APIs. And it's just toil. It's like the definition of developer toil, like just sitting there, just grinding. And so what got, you know, I watched all that happen. And it was usually about 30% of my team. Uh, and maybe that's because the products I worked on, but uh, it was about 30% of my team was just testers. And I thought, you know, this is just inefficient. Everybody hates it, right? As engineers, we just hate doing it. Uh, we hate like we hate the bad news that comes from it. So I said, you know, can we can we can we automate this thing? You know? And the cool thing was we went and started speed scale, is you were talking about Istio a little bit, but it's it's the whole Kubernetes ecosystem, like the, the whole container management thing, like makes it possible now. Like when I said distributed Wireshark, you can actually do that now. 
And even like five years ago, I don't know of a way to do that at, at scale, like, you know, at any reasonable scale, you know, to, to do a distributed work. I'm sure somebody can build something. I'm just saying it was like it was way hard. And it's gotten a lot easier because everybody's been pioneering. Shout out to Linkerd, too. Not just Istia, but Linkerd as well. <laughs> you know, um, those folks. But, uh, um, you know, they're kind of pioneering it. So anyway, that's, that's Linkerd, less finicky. Yeah. Less finicky, does a little less, a little, little smaller kitchen. Well, sink. yeah. Well, I have a customer, and I won't name them because they will get mad. Uh, but I have a customer that says, uh, uh, a friend who says, uh, I said, do you use list, you know, like Istio, like in anger, like in production? Because a lot of folks just play with it in, in pre prod. He goes, he goes, yes. He says, the only way to use Istio is in anger. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's the only way. <laughs> so. That, that could be on a t shirt. Yeah. So this all leads me to a question I wanted to ask based on um, just some leading up to this podcast is a long time ago, I used to do a lot of debugging in windows and I was part of my job was to, we ran these stress tests overnight and I was one of the people who got to go connect to everyone's debugger remotely and poke around, see what was going on and either debug it myself or find someone else to bring in. And I really enjoyed it and it was hard. And like Brent said earlier, it was hard and I was learning. So it was fun, but man, as confident and as good as I was feeling at that, when it comes to debugging microservices, when, as Brent was talking about before, when the problems happen in the hops in between and trying to reconstruct what's going on as things go from service to microservice to microservice, man, it's a, it's a, I'm good thing I'm management overhead now because <laughs> I probably just pull my hair out all day trying to figure out what to do there. So, so uh, I think you have some, it sounds like you have some experience or thoughts there. I'd like to hear like, one, maybe expand a little bit on the challenge and then talk about like how you get better at it. Okay, sure. So, okay, so the the, the thing that, um, so in, a, in an observability suite, there's like two big areas of things you need, right? And, and I'm, again, I'm oversimplifying. There's a million little things, but like in categories. One is you need deep visibility and you're going to get deep visibility. The, the easiest one is you're like, you're going to turn on the log monitor, Everybody turns on log monitor. The next thing you're going to do is you're like going to turn on StatsD, and you're going to get some metrics, right? Uh, CPU memory, something to put out of your application. Those are like the two easy things to start. If you're really, really, uh, you know, like dedicated, maybe you'll get some traces too, but that's, un- you know, more unusual. Um, and so you kind of start there. That's like the beginning of deep visibility. Now, the better deep visibility you get, the more, the more you get into each of the individual boxes in the microservice diagram. So I'll give you an example. Uh, you, are you guys familiar with eBPF? You heard of that technology? I have not. Okay. So extended Berkeley packet filter. And it's like giving Linux a superpower, like if, if you're running Linux. Uh, and they're also porting it to Windows as well, like you're mentioning, uh, you know, being Windows debugger. And what eBPF lets you do is view the inside of what's going on in the kernel with low overhead and, a, and an excellent security model. So... You can go and see inside of an SSL payload as the kernel sees it. Like if you instrument like the open SSL library, which almost everybody uses or most languages use, you'll see the HTTP transaction going back and forth inside of it. And so that's like the ultimate deep visibility, right? And so there's there's a good product out there called Contain IQ. There's uh, Pixie, which is an open source project that's really good. You can go look at how they did everything. Um, but anyway, that eBPF, so that's like going deep into these things, right? Okay, that's cool. So you want deep visibility, right? The problem is the deeper your visibility, the more data you get and the more unintelligible it is. It's impossible to understand. And what you'll see with that, at least I saw with all the, the big enterprises, is uh, the, the alert storm. Or as I like to can't fill, call it, the can filled with coins that just shakes all day long. 
you know, you know, the alert, it's just like alerts go off. Nobody knows what they mean. So what you end up having to do is create some sort of correlation and analysis engine to go and make sense of that thing. Right. And so what I was going with that about microservices is in the old days in monoliths, the, the value was all about looking deep, you know, like, like EBPF and all that. And that's still valuable. But in the microservices world, it's all about the correlation engine is how good are you at getting signal from noise? And Brent, I think you do some ML work, right? So I don't know if you have some thoughts on that, but. Oh, it, it, my, my team is, is deep in that space. Okay. Right? But uh, a lot of the code that we're working on, how do we put this? So Microsoft, as they, as they stepwise transformed, a lot of the things that we did is we basically lift and shifted server code and kind of turned it into service code. Yeah. Right. And and we're still in some places, you know, buying down that technical debt and 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 converting things into microservices and picking it up. Right. So we, we're at a point right now. So, for example, um, there is a non-trivial open telemetry migration that's underway. Uh, it's going to still take multiple years to to finally close. But, yeah, we we. Uh, there's a lot of tedious work in, in in I view it as tedious because every every team has produced their own telemetry. Uh, we get called in uh, to to do anomaly detection along the telemetry, so we have to we have to do everything that you're talking about uh, and 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 do it kind of manually from a from a data sciencey way. And each project because it hasn't been sort of normalized or curated into a common schema. is is basically starting from ground zero all over again. It's painful. Thankfully, that's one of my sister teams working on that problem. My 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 problem is more in the in the in the customers uh, customer space, uh, trying to understand what causes customers to retain or or leave. But those two worlds are very quickly uh, merging. Uh-huh. And so that's that's one of the, the problems I'm trying to work on is essentially, all right, when we see this type of um let's call it signature as a as a sort of a call flow pattern from the combination of the customer and the platform, can we translate that to an expression of a problem, say that a customer might might do in their support case report? Right. Uh-huh. That type of correlation is, is kind of what my team's focus is on. Can we that, figure out which of these patterns piss off our customers? And we do more of those, right? Yes. <laughs> Let me add another uh, just sort of practical example. I'd love to hear, uh, Matt, your thoughts on this. This is, I will try to anonymize this phrase the most I can. So um, part of biggest part of my org is just platform engineering. I've made a statement to one of our big service owners that, well, two things happen. One is we'll have incidents, operational surprises, and we spend, I think, more, well, in my opinion, more time than we should trying to figure out exactly where the problem is. The result of that is when I talk to the owners of our uh, some of our bigger services, I will say, and they won't argue with me, I'll say, I guarantee you right now something is broken in your, in your microservice architecture. Something is not yep. working as it yep. should. We may know tomorrow. We may know next week. We may never know. It may get fixed by something else, but we just don't know. And it, it all, this is making my case for observability yeah. or and, and how it needs to improve. So 
that statement's probably true for most microservice architectures probably in production today. Something's broken now. It's whether you know or not is the challenge. Yeah. Well, the old days you'd say what changed, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everything. And it isn't even that. We can have stuff change. Stuff will break and nothing changed. Nothing. No yeah. code changed. Not nothing changed. No code changed. So I'm going to give kind of an abstract answer because I've worked a lot on this at previous companies, right? Uh, the But I'll, I, like my thoughts on it are kind of, all right, so in the old days, and this is like the updating your thinking for like the new world of microservices or, or the, the new version of microservices, because if you remember long ago, we've we've done, the, you know, if anybody remembers service-oriented architectures, we've done some of this before, but uh, in the past, but uh, uh, with microservices architectures, so there's two key things that give you superpowers, right, for, for finding problems, to, at least in my experience, and I'm always interested in what you guys think, but the first one is, is you need a set of heuristics that tell you what normal is. And so, and that usually is applied to metrics or log patterns, usually, not always, but often, right? And so the simplest version of that is like, you know, it's like baselining, like automatic baselining algorithms, right? There was like a, there was a great company called AppDynamics that kind of pioneered this long ago of like finding like dynamic baselines. Okay, cool. Um, that's good. The problem is in microservices, that's, it's too variable. Things change too much because you're load balancing or your, your replicas are scaling up, scaling down, like depending on how sophisticated your system is, stuff's changing constantly. So a basic baseline is not going to cut it, right? But you have to come up with some system for understanding normal. The second thing, and I think this is the part that people don't understand as well, is you have to come up with a graph of dependencies that is continuously updated and that, that influences the normal model. So... Like well says, like uh, in the old days, it was really easy because you'd say, okay, well, I have a database and I have a, you know, I have two or three services, and then uh, I have the user and the load balancer and a few little things, and then uh, if I go, if the graph goes down, right, like that's kind of like horizontally, the graph goes across, the graph goes down, and I go into the servers and the VMs and the networks and the containers and all the other stuff, right, and you could come up with a pretty good idea of that, right. The issue that comes in now is that with microservices, like I don't know, have you guys ever seen the Death Star diagrams that were popular a few years ago, where they're basically you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, like Netflix has them uh, and other folks do as well. You, It's very hard to keep that graph up to date and you can't hold it in your head anymore. At least I don't know. You, you can't yes. reason about it anymore. So you need some tool that will, whether you build it or you buy one or whatever, you need some tool that will figure out what normal is statistically and then something that will go and overlay that with the heuristics derived from the graph model. And then you start to get somewhere uh, of actually hunting things down. Where I see the noise generation happening is where people have one or the other and they're disconnected. So, you know, I'm talking like state of the art, right? Now, now that there's an alternative to that is you get into, I mentioned Netflix, right? Um, Netflix has a lot of, cons- they have I- incredible volume, but a lot of consistency in the kind of workload, right? Like it's the streaming. Mm-hmm. So like, that's a different problem. And they have genius people who solve that problem differently. I'm talking the average enterprise that has a lot of weird shaped objects that they're trying to fit together into an online bill pay application or something, you know? So yeah, Netflix has a different quality of problem, I think. But so anyway, I talked a lot there, so I'm going to stop talking. No, no, it was, I had some good flashback there. Cause everybody used to debug stuff looking at, you know, it's multi-threaded stuff. And I remember taking a lot of notes on a pad of paper just so I can remember context and try and, it was too much to yeah. hold in my head, but I could, I could write some cues that would help me remember what a value was on some stack and some other thread yep. or something um, without scrolling up and losing my train of thought. And I don't have enough paper to do that for Microsoft. You need a system. 
you have to have a system that does it. I absolutely think it's it's so I've not heard it described so simply. I think that's super elegant. I think one of the things that is sort of inspiring the thought process in my head right now is to what degree are we kind of in this weird, awkward space because people are artificially holding on to the idea that it's understandable. That the, the complexity of how software operates, that, that, oh, if we just do this, we'll be able to understand it. And, and I'm, I'm now wondering what, what additional advancements would happen if we just let go of that idea. I'm certainly guilty of it. I look at our production system. I, I know what's wrong. No, you don't, Matt. No, no, you don't. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like it's too complicated to hold in your head, even our system as a startup. There was 99% Invisible, one of my favorite podcasts, I think it, I think it was that one. They, a pencil, a simple pencil. And, and this is something I think about all the time, just a simple wooden pencil. There's actually no one that can make those anymore. Really? There's nobody, there's nobody that knows how to build it all. Everything is sort of, there's one person that knows how to build the erasers. There's one person that knows how to assemble the parts together. But the pencil has kind of been something where no one by itself um, can build it from scratch, from raw material. Yeah. Yeah. And I I find that concept fascinating because you can hold a pencil. You can look at it and go, it seems like something I should be able to build. But no, no, you you. You can't now. You now you take something to something more abstract, more complicated, like microservices. I, how do we even find out which microservices are calling which other microservices? That goes to your dependency mm-hmm. call. Okay, well, or, or how about how about circular circular dependencies in in a microservice architecture? So let me just interrupt there and say that's a solvable problem. We've solved it. We've it's pretty easy to build something that'll show how your services interact, then you look at this big mess of a tangled spider web and you go, okay, now what? Well, then you have to filter it by workload, right? This particular thing, whether it's like a, a particular kind of trend, like user request or something or whatever, you know, you have to zoom in, you know, or whatever, but you're right. It's a big ball of, ball, ball of wax. I mean, it's uh, a big ball of yarn. I mean, it's a big ball of yarn or wax. Sometimes <laughs> or wax. wax. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it depends. You know, you got me thinking a little bit, Brent, with what you said is that one of the things that happens when you go to these distributed architectures is that software development is like really hard. At least it's hard for people like me. So like it, it's very hard for some of us, right? Uh, and microservices makes it very easy to build software. But then, then what happens is all the complexity moves over to Alan's team, <laughs> the operation platform team, all those guys. It, it takes all the complexity away. Like it makes it way easier to build the software and much way harder to run it. Because like you said, there's no pad of paper. It's too complicated, too many moving parts. But the development teams love it because they're like, this is great. All I have to worry about is my own little thing and it's polyglot. And I only worry about my little, uh, you know, my little, uh, I can circumscribe my concerns. It's like, yeah, but now you have a different set of problems, you know? No, no, yeah, no, it's easy. It's easy for you to produce as long as you ignore that, you know what? The Over time, the amount of time that you're spending actually writing new code versus going and debugging log streams slowly, in, in, well, maybe not slowly, increasing. I, I don't know what the common term is, but for example, in, in my organization, the DRI, is DRI a common term? 
a, a designated person to to go investigate. The designated right. responsible so, uh, individual. So if, if your service is out, I assume you, you Matt, have have some process to handle who's on point to go investigate life side issues, right? That's that's the we use the acronym DRI here. Right? When you slowly discover, so you're an executive, Matt, uh, if you were to find out that 50% plus of your engineering team is being spent on just DRI duties, Right. Uh, you you kind of go, well, OK, great. It's easy to produce code, but that's not where the cost is anymore. The cost is in the, the maintenance tax on on shipping the code. And the issue is, is OK, no, we got to stop thinking about shipping uh, as code as a singular thing. We got to think of it as, OK, how are we going to maintain it? When 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 some random team reports to us that our our random microservice, which then calls into 18 other random microservices, how do we know where the the bug fix is supposed to check in at? Yeah. Right. That, that's kind of the problem today. Today, in my view. I want to rewind the stack a little bit pre-Brent, or I, I may just delete Brent entirely from that section. I'll fig- I can figure it out later. One thing you mentioned is like, you're right, my, my platform team makes sure you have all the stuff. It's easy to get your service running. But also, 15 years ago, I was worried about building testability into products so they could be easier tested. Now it's, I make sure that people can build observability into their service from the beginning and make sure like, like just try and give them, uh, here's this nice paved road to walk down. If you do this, here's, here's where you start. And if you do this, you're going to be happy for a long time. A lot of risk is gone. You know, the durability is there. We're going to give you basically the equivalence of stats D or something. And, and we use Prometheus and some things on top of that. And we're going to just give that to you and show you how to get started there. And you're going to be in good shape. Or you can kind of go walk off in the weeds somewhere and do your own thing and good luck. Yeah. You got me thinking a little bit about like little tactical things or not tactical, not little things, but tactical things like we're going to standardize the monitoring stack, at least to a basic level. You can do crazy stuff if you want to. Like that has so much value. I'll tell you, actually, uh, Christine Spang at Nihilus, she's one of the founders of this company, Nihilus. She said something at, at, a, at a conference that stuck with me is one of the biggest bangs for the buck in a microservices architecture is to simply put correlation IDs that traverse every microservice. Just simple, like a header. You know what I mean? A header always there. And then the first thing the logging library does is print it with every log message. If you just do that, your microservices architecture is like way easier. And, and I think that Google did something similar that with Dapper. Oh, they all went, of course, way more advanced, right? Or whatever. But inside, like you said, it's like just a few little things can make the system so much more observable. Nice. So Matt, I saw from your LinkedIn that you uh, went to school in Georgia. Are you still in that part you of know, the country? You know, I actually moved to the Bay Area and uh, cut my job. Okay. But you moved back. It was, you said it was yeah, I did. I moved back. Actually, right before COVID, I moved back. Um, I'd like to tell everybody that it was my pre- foreknowledge of what was going to happen in the world like a month later. Because I moved back like a month before it all hit. Uh, but that's not true. That's not true. Uh, that's just a lie I tell. <laughs> um, uh, actually, I moved back to Atlanta because my my uh, I went to Georgia. I met my wonderful wife, who is definitely the brains of this outfit in this house. She's the brains of this outfit. And she... Uh, uh, she wanted to be near her family and her, you know, uh, her family. And I'll tell you, with COVID changing the landscape, even post, I mean, I don't know if we're post COVID, but it's, you know, it's died down. We, we may never be post COVID. Exactly. Um, but with it being less top of mind for folks, you know, it's the, the environment's changed a lot. Like uh, in Atlanta, it's, uh, 
there's a there's a startup scene here, and there wasn't when I left. When I left for the Bay Area, you had to go to the Bay Area if you want to be taken seriously. That's it's Atlanta has a, gr- a not just startup. Atlanta has a growing tech scene. Yeah, you. Yep. Calendly. Oh, sorry, go, no, yeah. Microsoft. Uh, like I have employees in it in Atlanta. We're building up a whole new development center there. Once a month, I bring up I bring up a topic to my boss. When are we getting an office in Atlanta? It's it's a great place. You should come here. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, the great one of the great things about Atlanta is you got Georgia Tech right here. You got UGA, which is a, a pretty good engineering school. Georgia Tech is a great engineering school. And it's kind of an untapped resource, right? And so, like you said, Microsoft's got a uh, you know building, you know across the, the, you know over the over our major highway here, seventy five. Google's here, and I think Amazon is expanding their presence. And you know, the, there's other thing is that there are real legitimate startups. So, like if you think about like where you get ignition in a tech scene, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but like you know where like the fire starts to go a little bit, you need the big companies with all the really smart people, you know, learning best practices, how to do stuff. The Microsofts, the Googles, the you know all those different folks, and then you need kind of like the money, right? Frankly, you need the VCs and the money, and then you need kind of you need just a few people who've gotten that taste where they've had an exit, like full or not an exit, but at least gotten big, like Full Story or Calendly. Um, again, these are not they're not huge companies, but they're unicorns. I mean, they're they're doing pretty well. You know, uh, Sales Loft, Pin Drop. There's there's some of them here, and then you get a taste of that, and with those three combos, people start to go, hey, you know, I could go do this. You know, why, why would I be the next Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos or whatever, you know, Bill Gates or, you know, it's like, I could do that. And so it's a pretty exciting time here. And, and then when you get enough of these startups and, and then with attrition sort of start, start crossbreeding and creating new things, it then starts to take on a, its own spirit of its own. Yeah. The VC, the VC thing, that's probably the biggest blocker. I know Bay Area. I mean, it's just chock filled riddle with, with tech VCs. I don't know. Maybe maybe start doing something with Coca Cola. I, I something that get it growing. I say there's a story from Reed Hoffman in the Alliance. He talks from LinkedIn. Talks about don't have the world anymore of where we work for one company for thirty or forty years and then retire. People change jobs, and I think change people changing jobs is actually a good thing. I survived at Microsoft for so long for two reasons. One was I changed jobs every eighteen months or two years. Something I always denied to Brent until he proved me I was he was right. But also for the first big chunk of my career at Microsoft, there really wasn't another place to go. There wasn't a lot of, or the kind of the level I was, there wasn't a lot of other tech besides Microsoft. But now you can bounce all over the place. Atlanta, same thing. There's a there's a place for you to grow, and I there, I think there's value. I think it's good when someone goes from one company to the other. You don't have to worry so much about oh my gosh, we lost all your everything we trained you on. We lost. Well, that's you still got value from that, and and because it, it, it's an alliance, it's a partnership, and I I I think Atlanta's ripe for that. And just I've met so many smart people from there. I'm just excited to watch it grow, and I want to get the darn Unity office in Atlanta ASAP. JR, if you're listening, do it. Come on down. It's great. The weather's not so great right now. Uh, that's the one thing I miss about the Bay Area. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it, it was My car said it was 98 degrees, and I'm pretty sure that's because it got so hot that the thermometer broke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my car said 98 degrees here in Seattle today. Uh, okay, too. well, there you go. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's darn close to that right now. Um, 
We don't we don't get the Atlanta humidity though. No, Atlanta's got great weather most of the year, but yeah, there's a few months where it gets a little rougher, you know. But hey, it gets that way in the East Bay and California too. So you know, it's, it's all right then. I this was it, actually before we end here. Um, anything else you want to add about the company? Anything else you wanted to shout out today? Um, are you are you on Twitter regularly? You want to give a handle there I can include or anything like that? Uh, I'm not on Twitter that regularly, but it's Matthew Larray. Um, you can find okay. me. You can find my company on Twitter, Speedscale Inc. Uh, uh, you can, uh, yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter. Yeah, that's good. All right. Our, our listeners generally like to stalk people that come on the show, so it's good to give them a few clues to start with. <laughs> okay. Then, then follow me on Twitter because I, I, I definitely I definitely post there regularly as of the <laughs> All the time. I'm religious about Twitter. So <laughs> As of today, yeah. Right now. I'm going to post right now. <laughs> All right. Thank you, well, Matt. Uh, thank you again for being on the, being on our podcast today. I hope you had fun. It was very informative for me, and man, it got my head thinking uh, harder than it normally does on a Friday afternoon. So thank you. So actually, before we close, like uh, for for our list, Brent with one with more our, tangent with our listeners, like what's the ideal customer to come and engage with SpeedScale? Right. Obviously, you have expertise around Kubernetes. So if you're on containers, you're doing microservices, come talk to us. Yeah, yeah. What's your pitch? So we help all companies of all sizes, right? Here's the thing. If you got like three, one of three problems, right? Let's say you're trying to move to a container system like Kubernetes. You're, you're trying to migrate there or you're trying to learn about it. You should talk to us because we will help you not like like have the quick way to, te- to validate your software and test it. And so if you're making that migration, talk to us. The second thing is, is if you are fed up with your cloud spend on your in your like your integration and, and development test environments, come talk to us because our little mocking engines, right, are super efficient, too, super tight, and they can replace huge test integration test environments with tiny little containers. So if you want to save some money on that, give us a shout. And the third thing is, is that if you uh, if you hate writing tests, then you're you're definitely our people. And if you're all three. <laughs> yeah, that's even better. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right, everybody. This is Alan. I'll see you soon. This is Brent. Goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Brent. Walking.